0: This week, I'm talking with Mary Priest, Education Manager for Bundanon Trust. Mary leads Bundanon Trust's education team, conducting tours and workshops and developing school partnerships. Mary has over 30 years experience as an art and design educator in Victoria and New South Wales, including roles as Head of Department, Examination Assessor and Residential Tutor. As a practising visual artist, Mary currently works in textiles and printmaking. At Bundanon, the outdoor classroom is the foundation of arts learning, informed by the natural and cultural heritage of the site. Nestled in some amazing tranquil bushland on the stunning New South Wales South Coast, Bundanon was Arthur Boyd's property where he lived and painted some of Australia's greatest works of art. Arthur donated the property and a huge collection of artwork to the Australian people, which is now managed by the Trust. From school groups to artists in residence, this is a wonderful place for students of all ages to clear their minds, find a creative space, and express themselves through great practical art workshops and experiences. Throughout the interview, we moved about the property to some of the different spaces and places of this amazing place. It's hard to express in words how this experience was for me, especially standing in Arthur Boyd's studio filled with that distinctive aroma of paints and with all the hallmarks of the creative workspace that remains exactly the same way that Arthur left it. Join us now for a brief tour of an amazing property and wonderful experiential education program. We're here this afternoon with Mary Priest who is Bundanon Trust's education manager? We're sitting in this amazing amphitheater location on the Bundanon property. Could you please give us a, a background of Bundanon, how it started and where we're at here? I'd be very happy to. So, Bundanon
1: Trust was Arthur and Yvonne Boyd's gift to the Australian people. Arthur Boyd was a Melburnian, very famous modernist painter, and In the early 1970s, after having lived in England for many years, he came back to Australia for a fellowship at ANU University in Canberra. He came down to Bundanon here to stay with the people who owned it at the time and fell in love with the Shoalhaven area. Shortly after he purchased the Riversdale property, which is home of the Boyd Education Centre designed by Glenn Market, uh, Wendy Lewin and Reg Lark. Here at Bundanon, he eventually purchased the homestead and built a studio on site and continued to live between England and the Bundanon property. Arthur tried for many, many years to give away Bundanon to the Australian people. He tried with the New South Wales government and eventually in 1993, Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister at the time, uh, flew down in his helicopter and accepted the gift of Bundanon Trust, which includes 1,100 hectares of rainforest and farmland, many, many buildings including the 1866 homestead and Arthur's studio from the early 1980s, all the Riversdale property and a number of other buildings on site which are now used as the artist in residence complex.
0: I find that really interesting. How did he have trouble giving it away because this is an amazing property and you mentioned Riversdale and we were just there and it just it is a beautiful outlook over the Shoalhaven River. You just have these amazing views. Why was it so hard to give it away?
1: Well, I think what he was trying to do was gift his art collection as well as the properties. And he had a real intention for giving particularly the Bundanon property, but really all four properties which are part of the trust away. And that is he didn't want to see Bundanon split up into home sites, for example, or sold off in parts. It, what he wanted to retain its integrity. It was a lot of land. It takes money to actually look after the art collection, to conserve it. It was in a remote location, so it was far away from the big national organisations, arts organisations that are in Canberra. I just think that um, the governments at the time probably thought it was going to cost them far too much money. Arthur's great saying was that you can't own a landscape, and he was, you know, he just loved the Bundanon landscape. He loved painting down at the river, loved everything about it, loved the bush, the flora and the fauna. And he wanted to make sure that it was shared by everyone.
0: It feels a very peaceful spot. So coming into here and just in the background can hear the lyrebird calls and it's a very relaxing place to be. What, what are the, all the sorts of different facets, what are all the sorts of different things that are happening on, on Bundanon at any, any point in time?
1: Well, I think if I use the word caring um, for all the different aspects, it probably helps explain. We care for an art collection that's probably well over 3,500 artworks from members of the Boyd families, friends of Arthur's and artists who have been in residence here. We care for the land. So for the last four or five years, we've had the living landscape landscape Landcare Australia Living Landscape Project, which has attempted to remove lots of heavily infested areas with weeds and lantana and plant trees on the property. That's been an amazing project. There's also the Very Large Artist in Residence program. So every year there's an open call for artists who come and stay here anywhere between two weeks and six weeks um, to work on their own arts practice.
0: And is that generally an oversubscribed program
1: we actually put the artists' applications through art form committees and then they're selected and there's always high, medium and low recommendations and, you know, eventually most of the high, recom- high highly recommended artists would be accepted straight away and programmed in and there's always a waiting list, yeah. So we have about 350 artists a year. And that can include everyone from an individual painter to a choreographer, a sound recorder, a filmmaker... Um, music group, dance and choreography. It's really quite diverse.
0: Fantastic. And, and that's, I, I like that because it's not just about education for school students. It's, it's about education for life. It's about people coming back or people trying to find inspiration in an area. That's it's excellent that you can provide that structure.
1: Yeah, it definitely is, as well as the Artists in Residence. Of course, sometimes we actually have curators that are coming here. There's been a large number of Arthur Boyd exhibitions at different galleries and institutions over the last few years. And we've had curators from National Gallery of Australia, National Gallery of Victoria, um, actually staying in our residence to, to research the extensive collection. We have a huge archive as well, as well, all the documents from the Boyd family, from generations of the Boyd family, as well as um, archival photos of, of this property.
0: What makes up the archive? Maybe letters, family letters, uh, business papers, all sorts of things like that, journal, personal journals, anything like that? Yeah.
1: In, in the archive, we have everything from Arthur's great-great-grandparents' diaries, um beautiful little leather-bound books through to the 1970s family snaps that Arthur and Yvonne and and the, his children took when they were travelling overseas letters between Arthur and various galleries that used to sell his work and gallerists old photos from the property that people have actually brought back to us
0: that will be a fascinating collection to to have a look at yeah so I will show you. excellent I look forward to seeing it that looks that sounds sounds there. excellent thank you could you please give me a, just an overview of the range of educational programs for schools that, that you run?
1: Uh, the largest number of programs that we run are actually for, are specifically for visual arts students. So we have visual arts teachers that bring their students down for two day or a three day stay or maybe a day visit and engage in looking at the practice of art through the artworks. That are part of the collection which are housed in Arthur's Studio and in Bundanon Homestead. There's over 500 artworks on display in in all the venues at Bundanon. We can also take the senior students up to the study centre and have a talk about conservation and some of the um, interesting works that are in there that are not on general display. We also do workshops on site and Engaging the students and their teachers with the history of Arthur Boyd. For example, we do a workshop called Visual Effects, which is in ink and pen on paper. We actually walk the students down to Bundanon Beach, which is about 15 minutes away from the homestead, at the beach where Arthur first painted when he came to the property, and where he went many, many times to create his Shoalhaven series of artworks.
0: Yeah, he was quite prolific with the with the Shoalhaven landscape in in, in his artwork. Yes, he was. Mm. Yeah challenging one and a little bit of a philosophical one. What do you think it takes to be, be creative and how do you use your programs to try and bring this out in the students?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the word creativity is often bandied about a lot, especially amongst people that work in the arts. To me, creativity is using the resources around you, being responsive and observant and reflective of the place that you're in and somehow combining all those experiences using a variety of media and expressive modes to produce something that actually communicates with people or is beautiful, has some sort of aesthetic quality that actually appeals to people. And I think it really with creativity, it's the process.
0: This area gives people that ability to try and then refine each time and look at things in a different way i would imagine
1: yeah it's interesting um i think the you know the types of creative process that that happen here at bundan are really really quite different because with our schools program we run three-hour workshops back at riversdale and the aim is to try and end up with the finished artwork you know, that couldn't be displayed at school, that engages the students in, in a range of media based on a particular theme. And a lot of our themes do relate to Arthur's work and also the environment at the different places of on Trust.
0: How do you differentiate between those younger years and then the more senior students? Because there's quite a range of emotional uh, experiences over that, over those years.
1: Yeah, I guess one of the things we certainly do here is not have a one size fits all I mean we can have two year 11 groups in one week that are here for a three-day program and the the students can and that actually happened in the last week and the students can be completely different like one group will be very mature and the other group won't be so and so you have to kind of adapt on your feet but what we do is the teachers actually choose which workshops they want to do but in every workshop that we're running in every visual arts workshop that we're running, we're kind of seeing where the level of students at because it's not like being in a classroom With students that you have for the whole year, we don't actually know what their skill level is, what what experiences they've had in the past with visual arts. When we get in there, we have to kind of quickly assess what they even what they're like at listening. But we find that students are really engaged. They're engaged simply by being in a very special place, by being exposed to a very amazing environment visually. Because a lot of our kids are city kids Mm. and they come down to us. um, So they're actually here for a landscape experience.
0: You have answered it in some ways, but how do you leverage this magnificent location for those students, for those educational programs, not just maybe art, but also for the ties in with the environment?
1: So over at Riversdale, we have a beautiful Rainforest Creek area. We use that area as an outdoor classroom. Uh, So we take the students down there. As they're walking down, they're getting quieter and quieter. They're actually starting to listen To the sound of the bush like we've got here in the amphitheatre today, then they go in and the light is actually filtered, it's dark. And so we create um, workshops that actually respond to that location. So we've got a workshop called Mosaic Landscape where they start off the artwork with using marks very loosely that respond to the sounds that they're hearing. So they're creating a visual equivalent of something they've heard in the bushland. They might be tracing the shadows that are cast from the sun filtered through the rainforest trees. They're exploring the the depth of the landscape, depth and perspective, and just using that to really develop artistic concepts and approaches.
0: Coming in here, you've pointed out a few of the different sculptures
1: so this area here um, in the amphitheatre, there's actually beautiful boulders that are on the floor of the amphitheatre and it's quite a big space. The other day we had um, students creating environmental sculptures. It's pretty much based on an artist called Andy Goldsworthy, a UK artist that's done a lot of land, land art stuff. And that was an art movement that started in the 1960s. So here we can see students actually created this little tower using sticks that it crossed over. And he's peeled a little bit of bark away from the longleaf jibung, which has incredible red colours and in the rain that's been falling here this afternoon. Um, So what he's doing is actually working with the elements of art. So working with line, tone, colour, shape, form, pattern to create an artwork that's ephemeral. So, you know, in a week's time when the wind comes, it's gonna be blown away. But the students would have spent at least an hour creating that work, maybe in pairs, discussing and, and producing the artwork. Then what they do is they actually document it so they might draw, paint, whatever, and capture that because in the end it's going to be blown away. But it just shows them how you can take very, very simple elements that are just in your backyard or just in the bush and create an artwork.
0: This one's quite visually stunning, which is hard to describe on an audio (laughs) program. (laughs) But you have this beautiful bark with a really red colour to it and then you've got that contrast with the green moss surrounding it on the rock yes. mm.
1: yeah so they really are working with contrast and you can see the way the bark the red bark has been placed is it's kind of woven almost in a square pattern and that relates to the the square structure of the tower of sticks mm. which has been created and when you when you look at something like this and you look at this area there are so many different tones and colors just in the environment so they learn about graduation of tone they learn about contrast I definitely think the way we teach here is you know we try and encourage kids to actually reflect on who they are and what they are and maybe because we don't know the students we actually pick up on little things so we can sort of tell if a student's um sort of outcast a little bit socially and try and bring them in and include them or put them with a different group just that encouragement to create and to say that everyone is a creator you know we get kids here that say I don't draw we'll have them drawing by the end of the workshop you know, even, even in uh, regular school time, it, they don't have that length of time to actually engage. Um, it's quick snaps and then you're moving on and you're going to maths or geography or history. But here they have that deep immersion. They've, they've got a little bit more time to actually sink into the activity.
0: We've moved locations and we're in Arthur Boyd's studio now. It's got all the madness <laughs> I would envisage of a painter that is just focused and creating wonderful artwork so can you tell me a little bit about this space and how arthur might have used it or how an artist would use this type of creative space
1: so arthur he was a very hands-on person so he actually was involved in building the studio for a start and he adapted some of the old styles of building so there's a cove ceiling which is an angled ceiling that goes up to a little flat top Um, up the top you can see two tungsten lights and that's because he worked a a lot at night and he needed a bright light source. There's also a south-facing skylight so to bring natural light into the studio. This very long window over on the north wall was actually created when a photographer came down to photograph the painting that was used as a basis for the Great Hall Tapestry in Parliament oh, House. Yes, You'd yep. be familiar with that. Yes, I know the tapestry. Yeah? And the canvas for the painting had actually been created in here. Right. And they needed to get it out, but it was too big. It was Mm. too big for the door, too big for any of the windows. So Arthur got a carpenter friend and cut open that opening and it became a little sort of window door by which they could get the large paintings out. Right. Of course, that that painting itself on which the tapestry is based is um, up on the first level of Parliament House in Canberra. I didn't
0: realise that. So I'm very familiar with the tapestry because I've been in in the Great Hall so many times with with groups and...
1: That's a lovely little story and that's one of the lovely things about um, communicating to all our visitors, to adults, to students, to artists that come here. There's so many little anecdotes about Arthur. For example, we've got a very simple painting tool here and Arthur was very inventive. He used to create his own painting tools. So he would use things as simple as spatulas, which are like kitchen spatulas, scrapers, which builders would probably use to scrape paint off housing, houses but he also used to make his own tools so this is straw from an old straw broom with wire wrapped around the middle and then he's actually used that to apply the paint of paintings particularly with the Shoalhaven series where he needed textures to show the the eucalyptus leaves. in the background so yeah he was a, a really really inventive painter and that's what we talk about with the visitors here is how inventive he was the palette is actually quite a large it's about one and a half meters long about 600 mil wide and it's on wheels there's a a section for rags underneath which is quite full as you can see still yeah. and the pallets covered with a perspex top so he was able to wheel that around to wherever he was working in the studio and there are a couple of smaller easels but also these three verticals which he used to do large paintings on. There are finished and unfinished works here Which you can see on the walls, and also works by some of his children and other other painters.
0: Having seen his paintings in different galleries in the National Gallery, and and now standing in actually standing in his uh, in studio where he did so much work, it's just it's a phenomenal experience. It's just it's very special space.
1: Yeah, it is. It's um, very much a human scale. Mm. You know, it's not a massive, whitewashed, huge, high-ceilinged studio like you might get today with contemporary painters it's very humble it's timber lined and I think one of the things with our education programs is the students and all the visitors come in here and you know you can smell the oil paint as soon Mm. as you come in and then you see the timber walls you can you know smell the pine that the the studio is lined with see all the art spectrum paint lined up on the walls and these large pots of paint which his assistants used to make to his little colour scheme, mm. which is over here. Oh, okay. It's got a little um, spot colour chart over there yeah. of his favourite colours. And everything really has just been left as he left it.
0: It's one thing looking at on a say, on a website or as, as an image, but it's another thing being in the actual space. Yeah,
1: that's what it's all about. And our CEO, Deborah, really, uh, very early on impressed on me. It's, it's about people coming here And I really, there's a few digital resources that I have for education groups online, but most of it is about being here, about actually coming to the studio and seeing the way Arthur responded to the landscape, because then the students go out and do that too. Mm. Now, Arthur painted at the river, they can see that here in a number of works that are on the walls, some from the Shoalhaven series, and then the students go down to the river where Arthur painted over and over and draw and paint his iconic rocks and the sky and the water and the land yeah. Yeah.
0: and that adds a lot of personal meaning to to the children to to their artwork to what they're doing because mm. they've been there they've experienced that on using local material i'm fascinated about the the work that you're doing with textiles and using local plants and local materials in in dyes and in creating textiles can you, can you tell me a little bit about that how it came about and and the work that you do with that I-
1: Get them as close as possible to the natural environment. So, in the amphitheatre, they were doing the environmental sculpture, actually using those materials that are from that place. And there's been a whole series um, of people. India Flint is actually a big person in the natural dye field and using the knowledge of plants and sometimes using Indigenous knowledge as well. And at Bundanon here, we definitely acknowledge the the Wadi Wadi of the UN Nation, their custodianship. I'll take you outside to where our Aboriginal bark canoe is. We've got a Nawi that was recreated in 2011, and that uses um, stringy bark, stringy bark from a property. Now you can also make string out of stringy bark, and you can also dye with the outer bark. So there are a number of different plants that I've researched and tested and tried. And so over the last two years, we've been developing our textiles workshops. So we do an eco-dye bundle, which means we collect plants at different times of the year, like fruits and berries and bark and reeds and rushes. Um, And we actually incorporate those into a bundle of um, silk, cotton, linen and wool and actually boil those up in, in a big dye pot that's made from a local bark or... Um, eucalyptus leaves that come from the southern highlands and there's just incredible natural colors that you can get. I've sort of taken that idea into my own basketry and weaving practice as well so usually when I'm uh, if I'm running a sculptural basketry workshop like I am for Pittwater High School next week here um, I'll actually dye the raffia or go out and source local plants like lamandra to actually use in those in those workshops.
0: And how do the kids react to, to being able to see this is from the environment and this is now being used as part of something we could wear or carry something in or or something practical and and real-world to... I'm
1: really in favour of that sort of approach down here. Not only are you using the natural materials that are readily available, and we do that selectively, you know, we don't use too much of that natural Mm, material, you know, we just harvest it sustainably. You know, if you're living in the city, most of the things that you find would, you know, you have to buy it from a shop. Well, actually, yeah. you don't have to buy it from a shop. You can actually just source it from your local environment and use it, and that way you're looking at and helping to understand traditional uses of that um, you know, fibre source or mm. that dye source, which the Indigenous people had a lot of knowledge about. And I think, once again, it's that tactile nature where oh, they can feel the bark and yeah. look at the eucalyptus leaves' shapes, and it's actually the shapes of the leaves that get impressed in the cloth. and then they can stitch into that cloth and layer it and create an artwork from it.
0: Okay, so we've moved once again. Where are we now?
1: We're actually inside our collection store, which is called the Study Centre, and it's where the bulk of the collection is stored. It's where we prepare exhibitions. We also bring artists and senior students in here to have a talk about the collection and conservation. At Bundon on Trust we use external conservators. So we have a a painting conservator and a work on paper conservator that we um, work with as needed. Um, Part of our, I get the rationale for the study centre, is to hold all the archive material and to hold all the paintings that are part of the collection. So that's works on paper, prints, um, artists' books, ceramics. Um, and large works like this one, which is one of the fabulous Nebuchadnezzar series by Arthur Boyd.
0: It's the uh, Nebuchadnezzar on Fire. I, I saw this in another exhibition one time, and it's, it's an amazing artwork. And it's, very, it's a very intense, very pain-filled artwork. How do you talk with them about quite controversial topics? And many, many artworks are extremely controversial, how would you go about talking about something like this with a group of students?
1: Yeah, so this I have talked about this particular work um, many times because it used to hang in the homestead. So you need um, an entry point, a starting point to, to actually talking about an artwork. So sometimes you might start with the title, Nebuchadnezzar. That's a funny name. Most students don't know the Old Testament that well these days, mm. but we would have told them prior to this that Arthur had heard Bible stories from his grandparents. So we might start talking about um, that, that name, Nebuchadnezzar, who he was, what he was, because we think that you know, sometimes in interpreting an artwork, you do need a little bit of background. And this work is really interesting because it brings in a lot of threads of Arthur's practice, of his experience. So we might ask the students to identify how he's used paint because he was a painterly painter. He actually engaged with the hands, with the brushes, like he saw in the studio, with yes. the physical application of paint on the canvas. And it was lovely because Barry Humphreys actually described going to visit Arthur when he was um, practicing in his upstairs studio in London. And he said Arthur was working on about seven paintings and he's just going from one <laughs> to the next to the next in, you know, in a very and engaged very physically. And you can actually see that. So we get the students to talk about uh, maybe the energy of the painting. What is the quality of colour that you see? So there's really intense reds, oranges um, in the fire, in the background. What are these um, sweeping diagonals here? Um, Burnt trees. Mm. In the actual figure of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we might discuss with them Arthur's use of metamorphosis. And so in Nebuchadnezzar in particular, that whole series of paintings that he worked on over about 20 years or more, Uh, And he he used to come back to it frequently and then move on with something else and then come back a few years later. In the the Nebuchadnezzar figure here, you can see he's prone, he's got very elongated fingers, he's outstretched. He doesn't look very human because he's actually on all fours. And so we see the great king of Babylon humbled because he's been thrown out of the city of Babylon, cast out into the wilderness to suffer. And he's suffering by heat. He's suffering uh, because, you know, he doesn't have all those trappings of civilization and power that he used to have. And we talk about the sort of symbols that um, Arthur has in, that the students might have seen in some of his other works. So at the top of the head here, there's a series of um, curling lines representing the horns. And Arthur's um, famous hybrid figure was a ram ox, a half ram, half ox creature. Mm. And so where you see these um, curly horns, that's the ramox coming back into it. And sometimes the ramox actually symbolised evil or a sense of foreboding and sometimes represented something else. Yeah. So you might talk about the way that, you know, can you see that the way the paint's been applied? So the students would be talking about how, how's this bit done? So there's an undulating spine on the top of that figure. That's been done by using the tube of paint direct.
0: Yeah, that's the right. only way
1: that that has been done. Um, what are these two red round shapes here? And of course, particularly with the boys' schools, we have lots of fun with that because they're actually testicles.
0: Yeah,
1: um, from the animal human, and you know what what does it mean when we're talking about why why are the testicles first of all? Why are they painted bright red? So. We've got a link with the fire.
0: They're a real standout on this image Mm. because they're in a very dark sort of area of the painting, and they are they are a standout piece. And then the white body of Nebuchadnezzar, Mm. and then the intense reds of the of the burnt trees. it's, It's yeah. So
1: just in terms of a you know a structural approach within a painting, you can see how it's actually um connected the bright reds up in the top right-hand corner in mm. this diagonal line through the undulating line of the spine down through um, to those testicles. But then we talk about who Nebuchadnezzar was. So he was a man with ego. And Arthur's actually using the testicles to represent ego mm. and, and power. And it's interesting that the testicles are actually not on the figure. They're actually separated off.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: And you see those, that image in a number of the Nebuchadnezzar paintings. Yes. and you see that elongation and exaggeration of the form and you see feet, but they're almost like frog's feet or kangaroo feet. You know, you're know, you not quite sure whether it's human or animal. So yes. That metamorphosis is, is something that we talk a lot about.
0: With with these <laughs> senior students, because I, I know there's an interpretation of this and, and it's a political mm. uh, statement on the Vietnam War, but with kids who are now disconnected from the reality of the Vietnam War... Do you see in from their own experience they start to interpret this in a different way, this sort of painting in a different way, and, and what sort of interpretations?
1: Yeah, and gen- yeah, that's so true. And generally, you would, um, you know, you would ask for their interpretations first, and then you might actually say, well, that's interesting. That links up with what we knew about Arthur at the time, because he was over in England, and he was his son would have been of the age had he been living in Australia, where he would have been called up for national service.
0: Yeah, he had
1: heard about. Um, a person setting themselves on fire at Hampstead Heath over in England in protest. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess there's many starting points. You can start with just looking at the way the paint's being applied and that might be a good way of actually getting students to in, to look at the symbolism, to look at the meaning and looking at the layers and meaning with the painting is really important. And then you can then say to them, well, connect that up with the whole series. You know, there's other artworks that they can they can study, they can go on our website and find all the other Nebuchadnezzars and compare and contrast them.
0: Yes, (laughs) I saw the unicorn works Mm. and uh, the sketches and just the progression of the different experiences of the unicorn Mm. and uh, I find that fascinating to be able to follow that progress and try to, it it paints a whole, it it tells a story really. Mm. And
1: And that's I think um, what's still, even though Arthur, you know, he painted this back in the 1970s, His works are still so engaging for contemporary audiences because they have a narrative. They connect us with the very, very distant past, you know, a biblical figure, but they bring that biblical figure into our reality now. And we can still look at a painting like this and think, "Wow, you know, what's happening in the Syrian war or what's happening with refugees? And we can connect those contemporary issues with, with that subject matter and with the way it's been depicted.
0: Because it makes it quite timeless, doesn't it? Mm, it does. Yes. Yeah, and I
1: think that's why so many people respond to to Arthur's work.
0: Couple left. Yeah. Couple of
1: left. <laughs> Come around the corner. I'm going to show you something really weird. <laughs> we've we've um, you know it's the uh, centenary of um Nolan's birth, Sydney Nolan's oh, yes. birth, yep. and because Arthur and Sydney were brothers-in-law. We have a lot of really interesting works, and there's a whole series of works that Sydney did when he was here that are basically very big airbrushed heads. So that's the nose, mouth, eyes, etc. Wow! Painted I, with the airbrush.
0: That's something that I I would not expect to see from a Sydney. Uh, like... Yeah,
1: I know. It's quite different. Um, that is very. But he, you know, he was really inventive too. And he tried a lot of um, different things. but We've got this whole series. And you can see as I'm um, pulling out these artworks the reason why we need um, a new collection store. Yeah. If you're in, a, you know, Art Gallery of New South Wales or National Gallery of Australia, all these works would be hung on um, special frames that pull out, easily accessible. Mm. Um, we actually have a, don't quite have enough room <laughs> for all the artworks in the collection, so our works are still stored like this. Uh, they're still, you know... In terms of conservation, they're still well looked after. Mm. And this is a um, state-of-the-art design building. But we need more space and we want to actually make these works really accessible to people. Yeah, There's a lot of the things in this little section that we're hiding in. Yeah. People just don't get to see. Like these tiles...
0: What is, are they a, it's a it's hand. a
1: ceramic tile so Arthur was um, you know brought up with his father who was a potter yeah. Eric was a studio potter and he was a really um, you know technically and artistically an amazing um, ceramic artist as well so he did large platters like the one that you can see here and he did these tiles um, which are actually encased with lead I think mm. from memory
0: so what's your favorite medium to work with in, in terms of your own personal artwork? I
1: always find those questions difficult because I like to work across a range of artwork mediums but at the moment it's fibre because I'm doing a lot of basketry and sculptural fibre work um, but I also love printmaking print uh, so paper any work on paper is a great love I love um, printmaking uh, I'm working on wood engravings using wood blocks um, and also I do a lot of drawing so that's a foundation of my own practice but um, here at Bundlenoy, we and you know offer a range of mediums and, and practices.
0: How do you create your own creative space? How do you set up somewhere where you can just focus and work?
1: So that's really interesting. I think often my ideas start with a walk in the bush. So it might be out here at work or in my local environment at Bomadary. Um, I'll go for a walk. I, I probably, I think I play. I think play is a really big part of my arts practice, so I I play with the materials, I experiment, I might start something, throw it in the bin, start something else, and then gradually an idea will build. But I think the lovely thing about working in a creative field, whether it be textiles or painting or printmaking, is, is there's a medium that you're working with. Um, there are qualities of that medium that you can exploit or that you can enhance, and I think gradually you work your way through a process, but it's not just the first piece that you produce. It might be the third or the fifth piece that you produce that you're really happy with. But often my work does start with found materials. So it might be stick, something that I pick up at Culbarra Beach or a vine that I pick up in the local environment or a particular plant material that I've harvested and I'm just testing out. And uh, at the moment, a lot of my work's based on a very um, simple technique, which is string making. And I take all the fibre work from the string that I make from that plant and then coiling or structuring it in different ways using um, basketry and textiles techniques.
0: Final question? Yeah. In In all your years of teaching and educating students, is there a standout either piece of art or standout moment, uh, an aha moment for a student that you've seen in, in all the years that's been something that you've gone, mm. that's a really special thing that that student's done or that student's discovered for themselves
1: i think for me it's not kind of the big moments or the really successful works it's when you have a student working over there in riversdale in that beautiful space and they've started out not very confident but you've sort of uh, jollied them along and encouraged them and they actually have produced a work that they're proud of i think that's as good an aha moment as, you know, some of my students that have, for example, topped the state in design, which has happened in the past. But I think um, it's those small successes that are really important and you can just see how much that means um, to that student where they have some success maybe where they might not be academically inclined, but they're really good with their hands or, you know, they've created something they're really proud of. And I love it when they say, oh, can we take this home? You know, that's really the litmus test. Is, of course you can take it home. It's your work. Yeah. And we do try and, um, at Bundanon, we do try and sort of carry through the idea of you, you've created, you've gone through this process, you've got an almost finished artwork. You know, it's reasonably well resolved. And at the end of a workshop, we try and... Um, line up their artworks, have a talk about them, so we'll talk about you know the positives and negatives of that experience, really try and unpack the whole experience and get students to talk about you know, what they've achieved and what they think they've achieved. Yeah, And in the end, you, even though we're teaching a lot of um, visual arts skills, a lot of our workshops are very schools-based, there are a whole lot of other things that are going on as well which relate to arts practice that they can then take forward in their own more independent work as they come into Year 11 and 12 where they're actually creating their own body of work.
0: From an educational point of view, that, that's excellent because it, it's just the growth of the individual mm-hmm. and that's... Yeah, I'm, I, I just love this property, so <laughs> it's so excellent.
1: It's <laughs> a pretty magic place. I would really struggle to go back into schools now.
0: Yeah. Because, uh, like,
1: you know, being able to work with the collection and exhibitions, that's, um, that's always something different. Being able to work with the landscape and learning about the landscape and seeing how the students actually get to see how artists respond to the landscape when they're in residence. Mm. Mm.
0: It's a special place to be, so. Yeah, it is. Thank <laughs> you so much, Mary, for taking me around, for showing, showing me all sorts of parts of this, uh, this wonderful property and the collection and the building. So thank you, I really appreciate your time.
1: That's a pleasure and you know, uh, we're very lucky to be in the Shoalhaven. It's an extraordinary area.
0: That was Mary Priest, Education Manager for Bundanon Trust. For more information on visiting Bundanon or the amazing programs they offer, check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave a nice review. It helps others to find the podcast and helps me to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let me know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us next week as we explore more great stories and ideas for experiential education.